0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today I'm speaking with Paris Marks, author of Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation, out with Verso in 2022. Paris Marks is a Canadian tech critic and host of the award-winning Tech Won't Save Us podcast. Their work has been published in Business Insider, NPC News, Jacobin, and Tribune. And just this week, they pu- published a piece in Time Magazine on Elon Musk. Um, probably another hagiographic hey, uh, fluff piece on Elon, I would assume. Yeah, uh, yeah but, but very, I'll
1: let, very positive. Yeah, <laughs>
0: I'll, I'll let Paris address that, maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, Paris earned a master's degree in urban geography from McGill University, researching Silicon Valley's efforts to transform how we move. In Road to Nowhere, Paris-Marx identifies two convergent forces in the 20th century, the growth of the climate-killing automobile industry and the rise of Silicon Valley with its California ideology. Their narratives show how these two forces merged in the early 21st century with less than ideal, even deadly results. Paris-Marx challenges many of the tech industry's myths, misrepresentations, and outright lies and offers some suggestions for how we can build a better world. Paris Marx, Paris, if I may. Uh, welcome to New Books in History. I'm a big fan of your writing, so I'm excited to have you on the show.
1: Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to dig into this with you and, you know, have these conversations where we talk uh, very positively about Elon Musk and about and about how uh, great the things he's doing in the world are.
0: <laughs> yeah, I heard I heard um, I on a podcast the other day. It might have been. Um, your podcast where, uh, someone referred to you as, um, uh, the left's leading, uh, muscologist.
1: Yeah. That my, uh, my editor, um, at Verso books, Leo Hollis has taken to calling me that. And I'm not sure how I feel about it yet, but I guess I just need to embrace it.
0: <laughs> well, you know, maybe you can get a big grant for a, a program in muscology studies from him.
1: There we go. There we go. <laughs> I don't know if he'll be giving me that grant though. <laughs> Do you think he actually reads the grant
0: proposals? Come on.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs>
0: um and, and also there's no such thing as bad press, which um definitely maybe, maybe is one of his motivating principles. I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'll say with the book as well, like one of the things that we were thinking about, like, you know, naturally, we want to get it in front of people and get people to notice it. But at the same time, I was like telling my publicist, I was like, you know, we should also think about what we can do that's going to like really piss off the right wing, because that'll, you know, create a media cycle in itself about the book, which is is positive, right?
0: Almost like, uh, Muhammad Ali, um, Fraser rumble and jungle rope dope where you, you can, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you
1: okay. know, I've, I've written before and, and Breitbart has picked it up really angrily. And I've had an article featured on Tucker Carlson where they got really angry about what I was writing about cars and electric cars and car dependency. So, you know, it, it certainly brings people in because, you know, when, when the right wing features these things, there's very polarized, um, reactions to it, right? You have, you know, their supporters on the right who will kind of jump on board and kind of, you know, send you a lot of kind of really mean comments and stuff which is just to be expected. But then there's also the people who really hate what they like outlets like Fox News are doing and will, you know, try to learn more about what you're talking about and and, you know, feel more supportive toward it. So, you know, there's two sides of the coin there.
0: Yeah, you know, that's really fascinating. It makes me wonder if maybe um there's less of reluctance, um, in right media to platform the other side. Whereas, uh, amongst many left media, like there's, you know, like, Oh, don't put that person on the air. Don't get, you know, don't give them any oxygen. Don't platform them. I wonder if that does a disservice to one side or the other. I mean, or, 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 or to the, (laughs) let me be a bit more diplomatic, um, and bipartisan or to the, the general, uh, level of discourse,
1: Yeah, I I don't know, because I feel like part of the reason that the right does it and like, you know, usually they'll just kind of pick something to be a punching bag. Right. And won't actually, you know, have someone on for the opposite view or like when they will have someone on who, you know, identifies as left wing, it'll often be on a subject where there's kind of common ground. Right. And maybe, you know, that person who's on the left will take an opportunity to kind of take a jab at, you know, say Fox News politics or something like that. But I still think largely it serves their ends because it helps to reinforce their points and their view on the world. Um, but also, you know, I don't think that their, lis- their listeners or viewers or, or what have you are really concerned if someone on the left calls out their hypocrisy or something like that, because they're very much already in the bubble and they're not, I think it's very unlikely that they'd be swayed from that kind of um, opposition or, or different kind of view on, on things.
0: Have you, have you had anybody that you firmly disagree with on, uh, on your show?
1: I don't believe so. Um, I've considered having someone on and I won't say who, who has a bit of a different opinion on technology and maybe the role of technology on the show, um, to have a discussion about that. Cause it's someone who I respect, like, you know, regardless of that kind of difference of opinion, yeah, yeah. um, I haven't at the moment, just because I haven't had time to reread that person's book in order to kind of feel like I've done the right amount of preparation to have that conversation. Um, but I would say generally, it's not something that I do. Like you know, I had some people ask me to bring someone on the show who would be like a really big supporter of the cryptocurrency industry or something <laughs> like that. But but I and and I'm very yeah. anti cryptocurrency. Yeah. Um, but I don't feel like that's the point of the show, really, yeah, like, yeah. it's not a debate show, right? right it, it's it's right. an interview show to try to enlighten and educate the audience. And so I feel that that doesn't really fit into kind of the purview of what I'm trying to do with the show to have that kind of a conversation. Um, and so that's why I, I tend not to I'm not inherently opposed to having people on who don't have completely the same views like, you know, the show very much identifies as a socialist podcast, but I've certainly had people on who um, are not like fervent left-wingers or anything like that who would consider themselves maybe more centrist or liberal or what have you, right? Um, and so we would have some disagreements there. But I think generally, you know, I would have those people on on a certain topic because I think that even though we might have some political disagreements, that their viewpoint on whatever tech topic we're talking about really helps to inform the conversation. And even if, you know, we might have some disagreements about broader political issues, that on that specific topic, it helps to have that conversation because I think that they're going to you know, help the audience learn about whatever it is that we're talking about. So yeah, I guess that's my kind of view on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it's something I think about all the time. I mean, there's, uh, I'm not going to name any names, but there's um, a scholar or two out there who posts some, uh, I think pretty more, or not post, publish um, some pretty morally reprehensible books on the history of imperialism. And I don't, would I, would I want to have them on? I mean, this isn't, these aren't debate shows. I mean, they're there to, they're there to promote the book. Um, and, and we will get to your book, sir. Um, we will get to your book. <laughs> Completely okay. <That> yeah. <laughs> um, I apologize on that. But I, um, I'm a, again, I'm a big fan of your, uh, of your podcast. I wanted to ask you a few questions here. Um. But you know, I, I, it's yes, that issue of platforming. Do you, do you give them any oxygen or do you just ignore that and pretend it will go away? Um. Anyway, um, I, I wanted to ask you, and we, you've, talk to it uh, a little bit, um, what's the um, elevator pitch for uh, your podcast for Tech Won't Save Us?
1: Yeah, I would say it's essentially that you know we've had a few decades now where these narratives from Silicon Valley have been really dominant in our culture and this idea that the tech industry and technology more generally is making the world a better place has been something that I think has been really normalized, certainly it's been challenged a bit more recently. And the goal of the show is really to give us a different perspective on the tech industry, to look back at the history of the tech industry to see what we can learn from that, but also to dig into what they're actually doing today and what the impact on the world they're actually having is um, and to you know provide a platform for that kind of a conversation. Because even though you know there has been a bit more of a critical turn in the past five years or so on the tech industry, um, a lot of the tech media... You know, a lot of the tech podcasts are still very optimistic and very positive about the tech industry and about Silicon Valley. Um, And so the show was really to kind of step into the void that I perceived as existing there and to say that, you know, we really do need to think more critically about technology, about the tech industry, about Silicon Valley. And not to just embrace every new technology that comes along because we assume that new technology means progress, but to actually say, is this technology serving the public? Is this technology making the world a better place? And if it's not, we should have no kind of qualms or we shouldn't feel scared about saying this is not something that should exist. This is not something that we should embrace or accept, but that we should challenge because it doesn't serve a positive purpose you know, in our lives and in our society.
0: Mm-hmm. And and let me ask you how you came to be the Paris marks that you are, and the, the and the host of such a podcast. I mean, what um what was your intellectual formation, educa- educational formation that led you to this point, and also to publishing um the book, which we won't get to, um, Road to Nowhere: What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation.
1: Yeah, I I would say you know it came out of a number of years, and like I think there are many kind of threads that you could go back and pull on to see how I came to this point. Like, you know, I was always kind of interested in technology from a really young age. I taught myself HTML when I was like, you know, in my teens because I wanted to make websites. And, you know, that was what you did back then because it wasn't as easy to like make free websites or, you know, things like Wix or Squarespace or, or, you know, those kind of tools that exist now. Um, And, you know, I went through a period as like an Apple fanboy. Um, where like I was really big in the Apple products and certainly like the church of Steve jobs in a sense, you know, like believing those sorts of ideas. Um, I'm, I'm
0: I'm super, I'm super delighted you're admitting, uh, these things because reading your book, I was like cringing about so many things that I've bought into, uh, in regards to transportation, but (laughs) but yeah,
1: (laughs) you know, I I've been there too. Right. Like I, and I certainly went through a period where I was really interested in like cars and, um, you know, knew a lot about different car makers and different models of cars. It's not really an interest that I have anymore. Like someone asked me recently, like, you know, I know you don't really like cars, but if you had to pick a favorite car, what would it be? And I was like, I don't even really know. Like, I, I don't keep up with these things anymore. Right. Like, you know, I guess there's some that look kind of cool, but like, I don't really have an opinion <laughs> on that. Right. Um, And so, you know, in in high school, I started to read Marx and and later like Lenin and other socialist thinkers as well. And so that's where that kind of came from and I was certainly interested in climate change as an issue before that, I would say, if we're thinking about any particular issue that was kind of radicalizing to me, I guess it was probably climate change um, that led into, you know, uh, I guess a more critical direction, a more left-wing direction. And then over time, you know, I think that there was a real focus for me on cities and transportation. I started to write about these issues back in 2015, 2016, in that, in that period, um, you know, started to do a bit more freelance writing in the years after that, Um, I went back to school in 2018 to do the master's you were talking about in urban geography, looking at what the tech industry was doing in transportation, um, because that was a topic I was really interested in and wanted to know more about and wanted to dig into further. And so it seemed like a good opportunity to do that. And then when I finished it up in 2020, uh, around fall of 2020 is when I graduated, I would have finished the thesis a bit earlier than that. Um, You know, I was wondering what would come next, what I was going to do next, um, whether I was going to do something more with that material. Um, It had already been suggested to me that, you know, I should consider turning it into a book. Um, And when I looked at what was out there, I didn't really see A similar book like there have been really great books on different segments of what the tech industry has done in transportation like ed Niedermeyer's ludicrous looking at tesla um, or um, mike isaac's super pumped looking at uber and you know a bunch of other books with very specific um you know looking at specific companies but my book and what i was trying to do was take a broader view at the larger landscape and also like looking at you know i guess the history of of How it came to that point and the ideas that kind of informed this particular approach to transportation, Um, and so that seemed novel to me, Um, and so I decided to go to Verso because you know they were a publisher that I wanted to work with anyway, that I um, you know really liked, that I read a lot of books from, Um, you know I I had friends who had published books with them, so one of my friends connected me with Leo Hollis, who's my editor there, and he was really interested in it right away, Um, and so. Yeah. Then early 2021, I kind of, you know, took some ideas from the thesis, did a bit more research in the months before that. It was, you know, I guess first half of 2021 that I really wrote the book. Then we went through some edits, you know, throughout the year. Um, And yeah, now as of last month, it's... uh, on the bookshelves, I guess, and people can actually read it.
0: <laughs> it's, it's on, it's on my desk, literally as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and I guess I should say with the podcast, I forgot to, to mention that yeah. piece of it, but I'd, I'd always wanted to start one. And as I said, I was already doing this writing on these topics, investigating these topics. Um, but before the pandemic, I was on the road a lot. Um, and, and that it just felt like, It'd be too difficult to like get a podcast started if I was traveling a lot, didn't really know where I was going to be like the logistics of it just seemed really complicated. Um, but then, you know, once I was in lockdown and I knew I was going to be stuck somewhere for quite a while, I said, if I was ever going to start a podcast, now is the time to do it. So I started in April of 2020. Um, certainly didn't expect to be, you know, stuck in one place for such a long period of time. I, I still haven't left the island of Newfoundland since the pandemic started. Um, but yeah. And so, you know, I'm really happy I did because it's allowed me to have a lot of really great conversations with critical people, especially at a moment in my life where, you know, I wasn't on the road. I was in a place where there's not a whole lot of people and not much of like an academic community who does work on these sorts of issues. And so it really allowed me to kind of not only keep keep up some connections but also to make new connections get to speak to new people even as I was kind of geographically in a place where there weren't many people who are working on these things so it was really you know it was really great and I really loved it
0: so podcasting allowed you to overcome some of the, the issues of geographic isolation and the pandemic so I, I don't know did tech
1: save you <laughs> in some ways <laughs> right like <laughs> but like you know uh, i guess and i know you're saying this jokingly like yeah. you know you're not trying to kind of put me on the spot or anything but i would yeah. say you know tech tech won't save us is the the name of the podcast is meant to be provocative right because yeah. Yeah. if i if i really kind of coached what i was saying it wouldn't be such a, an interesting title right yeah. and yeah. and in saying tech it's not so much to say that like technology is bad because i think that technology has had a lot of positive um impacts on the world you know if we look at the way that technologies have been able to you know extend our lifespans to to cure diseases to create vaccines and things for us like there have been many ways that technology has provided benefits to to humanity to us right um but i i guess when i say tech um what tech really refers to in some senses is, is more Silicon Valley and the capitalist yeah, the, the tech, the tech industry, industry and, and, that, us, right? and, and that yeah.
0: culture and, and, and that exactly. business culture. And no,
1: I, I got checked out there, but just to, <laughs> for, for the audience. And, just to clarify and for the, for the listeners. That's all. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: And, and, and also, I mean, I, I, I don't think one can be, uh, shall we say a good Marxist and not be pro technology in various ways. I mean, Marx was in many ways, you know, a critical, but still a cheerleader of the power of technology. I mean, that's, that, that's a whole nother conversation, but, um,
1: No, but and, I, I would yeah, comment yeah, on it. Like yeah. if, if you want to give me a second for it, sure, because sure. I do think it's really interesting. Right. And it's certainly a, um, I guess kind of a, a, a break or a disagreement that kind of, I guess exists. Right. And and that is certainly a conversation that comes up when, we talk about technology because I guess you could say that a number of these podcasts, you know, we were talking about them before we started recording like mine or this machine kills or trash future do kind of take a more,
0: by the way, those are like my, my, you guys are in my like, holy trinity of uh, (laughs) tech podcasts. Um, Tech won't save us. This machine kills and trash future, all very different flavors. Yeah. but but have a really nice synergistic effect. And I'm sorry I inter- interrupted you, but go on.
1: Absolutely. No, and, and thank you. Um, and, and so I would just say that, you know, we take a very critical stance on technology and and on the tech industry as well, right? Um, and certainly there are some people who disagree with that, right? And who would come back and say, well, you know, Marx wasn't anti-technology. Um, you know, Marx just looked at how capitalism was using technology in a way that kind of wielded it against us. And I would say that, you know, I, I can't speak for everyone involved in those podcasts and certainly any thinkers on technology, but you know, one of the things that I know I'm kind of inspired by and the guys at that, that This Machine Kills are, are the works of people like Langdon Winner and David Noble, who did take a more critical stance on technology and didn't just say that the problems that we experience with technology today are, are a result of capitalism solely. And, you know, if we had socialism tomorrow, we could just kind of reorient those technologies to positive purposes. But to say that there are some technologies that do function more like tools, right? And that can be wielded to different purposes if the social relations and, and the economic relations are different. But then there are other technologies that over time have developed in a way that they have been shaped by the forces of capitalism, right? And that if tomorrow there was socialism, those technologies couldn't be so easily shifted or changed to a different kind of set of social or economic relations. Um, And so that's why we need to look at these technologies in a critical way and ask, you know, are these technologies beneficial and can they be beneficial in other ways? Or are they kind of inherently harmful to society, to human society? And do we need to take those on? And so, you know, I guess it's having that more kind of nuanced and, and critical look at, at the technologies themselves, rather than just saying the problem with technology is a problem of capitalism. Um, and and if we just had socialism, these problems will go away. And I don't think that that's always the case.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to guess that maybe you would offer the automobile as example of a, of a technology. Um.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would certainly agree <laughs> with that statement. <laughs> I, I
0: don't know, but you can write a whole book on it. Um, yeah. Uh, so, um, the, the road, road to nowhere is obviously a book about our current crisis um but you did a great job of putting this current mess in a historical context um as this is new books in history and as i am indeed a historian you can tell by the the gray beard i have the historian's <laughs> beard um i was i was delighted um and without getting to the specific history of the automobile or silicon valley just yet we'll get to that in a minute um and and being you know a, a geographer by training but someone with a really interdisciplinary um um mind um w- why did you include so much history in the book what was what was important about the history to understand the current crisis
1: yeah it it did feel really important to bring the history in there and it was really reinforced in conversations that I was having with my editor, Leo Hollis, when we were discussing the structure of the book, because, you know, there was one way of framing the book where I could have just looked at what has happened in the past 10 or 20 years with these tech companies, what they have proposed, what is wrong with it, and that would have provided, you know, I think a pretty decent analysis, right? But I think that going back and looking at the history really helped to kind of demystify some of the language and some of the promises and some of the ideas that have been ha- that have that been coming from the tech industry over that period of time because you see how so many of these um, ideas that they're putting out there are not new and not novel and not really innovative but are kind of recycling ideas that have been presented to us many times in the past and that have you know, not come to fruition, not been realized, even though similar promises were made in the sense that, you know, they were right around the corner, they were going to arrive, and then they didn't. And then a few decades later, they were promised again, and they didn't come. And then they were promised again, and they didn't come. And now we're in this new stage of having these promises being made again, because it works for this set of companies and individuals who need to promote a certain aesthetic and idea of of the world in order to kind of legitimize themselves and their industry, Right. Um, and so that was a part of it. But then there was also the part, as you were saying, about the actual histories of these industries themselves, right, to look at the history of transportation of the automobile in particular, and to look at the history of the tech industry, because I think that also helps to show us like how we got to this moment where you know, these tech companies are making these particular solutions and also why their ideas of how to solve these problems are so constrained um, to very narrow visions of how we, you know, address the problems with transportation as the book talks about. And so, you know, that to me is why it seemed really important to have the history in there, because it really did provide a broader insight than just looking narrowly at what they've proposed and what is wrong with them, but really kind of broadened out the perspective that I could provide through the book. Um, And, you know, it seems to me from the book being out for over a month now that um, readers are responding really positively to that, um, to to those insights. And so that uh, that's really great for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I would just add on to that that another reason you did this <laughs> um, uh, was, I mean, to, to illustrate that um, that in recent history, um, at least North Americans have gone through these crises uh, previously, and it's it's some of the things that we see as shockingly new um, we've seen before. And you, yeah. you do this a couple of times where you talk about uh, a situation. I think, I think when you talk about one of the electric car companies and you, you describe this company and, you know, obviously you're, you're baiting the reader and it seems like Tesla. And then you do the old, the old switcheroo yeah. and no, this is the, was it the American electric car company or something or. Yeah. It, it was
1: something like that. Yeah, electric, electric vehicle that. company or something like yeah. that. Yeah. in like but the that- whole, Late 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah,
0: (laughs) the whole point of that case is like we've done this before. I mean, you know, it's the um, the true detective uh, time is a flat circle kind of moment. (laughs) Like we're going through this again, and um, um, I just find I found that such an excellent part of the book, but also that that this radical disruption of human mobility isn't that old. Um, I mean, my great grandfather. Uh my my grandmother always told me she's very proud of this. He was uh, he owned the first uh automobile in the state of Montana. Oh, and, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he, he also was an early uh 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 oh boy I don't want to say this in public, but he was he was early <laughs> in uh, at what became Anaconda Copper and uh was d- decidedly on the wrong side of history, but we'll, we'll yeah, circle back yeah. to that in my memoir. But uh, anyway, yeah, and uh, also on the wrong side of history, I had the the first car in the state of Montana. And, um, you know, I, I as a 20th century historian, um, uh, most of my work's in the early 20th century, and I really appreciate, you know, this discussion of how radical that transformation uh, from 1890s to, you know, about 1920. Um, there's a, that that one generation where the where at least the uh, the global north uh, is dramatically transformed and so quickly, and so while we think we're going through these quick technological transformations and their social impacts, is like we've seen this before. We've seen this before, and I, so I really, I as a historian, I really appreciated that part of the book. Um, so let's get into it. Um, the first uh, the first chapter is what I'm just sort of alluding to about the history of the automobile's disruption of life, um, specifically urban life in North America. Um, what are some of the key turning points in the uh, this narrative of uh, what was called the modern Moloch? Um, <laughs> and um, how, how does that shape our understanding of the current crisis?
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I would just pick up on what you <laughs> were just saying there, right? Because one of the things that really stood out to me in in doing this research and going back and learning about the history of you know, automobility in particular. And, you know, I cite a bunch of people like historian Peter Norton in particular, who was really key to to this work and, you know, who did a lot of work on the automobile in the early American city, but also a bunch of other academics who've, who've done work on this space. Um, was that, you know, the tech companies today talk a lot about disruption, right? And how they're disrupting our lives and disrupting existing industries. But it really stood out to me As you were saying there, the degree to which the automobile was a real disruption um, in, in a very substantial way, and in a way that these tech companies have really, I would argue, not achieved, especially in the realm of transportation, right? They are really not disrupting very much. They're just sticking some new digital technologies into an existing infrastructure. Whereas when we look at the automobile, when we go back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, we see a streetscape that is incredibly different than what we have today, or that even exists a few decades later, right? Where people, where, where the street itself is a shared space, right? Where many people are getting around in many different ways. People are walking on the street. People are taking a bike on the street. People are in the streetcar. People are in carriages. People are taking the omnibus. There are many different means of getting around on this single street. And in part that works because And, you know, certainly there were issues with it. That's not to say everything was like perfect in the in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, But because they were all going at a relatively low speed, you know, there was they were able to navigate one another. Right. But then the automobile comes into that and it doesn't really fit with this existing, you know, norm for how the street actually worked because, you know, it's more maneuverable. It starts to go faster than the other forms of transportation that are on the street. It just, it just doesn't really fit, um, with how everyone else is getting around. And very key to that is it has particular impacts on the, the, the other people, you know, people who are living in the city, other people who are using the street in that, they really start to kill people pretty quickly, right? And and that's a very notable thing because, you know, you didn't have as many deaths on the streets before that, but the numbers start to rise really precipitously as the adoption of the automobile rises. And that particularly affects children and young women are some of the people who are affected most by by these deaths, who are killed most, right? Because at the time, of course, especially when you have people living in cities, you know, it was normal for kids to play in the streets and particularly the side streets. That that was you know, where they played, where they played ball and things like that. And there was far less of a risk that they would be hurt and injured in doing those things. Because, as I said, everyone was moving much more slowly on these streets, right, especially on the side streets. Um, And so the automobile comes in, and it really changes that, right, by creating these new dangers, and you really do have a response from the public, the public who is being affected by that, because we need to remember at this moment, the automobile is more is mainly like a luxury object. It's something that's owned by people of higher income. Yeah, and that's so most what I, people,
0: I, I, well, yeah. I want to jump into, to underline that, that it's, that it, there's a class element to this. That is, it is this luxury item. Um, and it, it's a real marker of, of privilege. And then it, and that, you know, it's, it's, it's like bad caricatures of, um, the Ancien regime in France before, uh, the revolution that, you know, aristocrats killing people on the street. I mean, you, this is what you're having in the, in the streets of North America, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's wealthier people who are owning these vehicles, who are using them for touring and to get around and to get out to their, you know, homes that are outside of the city proper. Um, and it, it enables them, I guess, the freedom to do that, right? There are certainly narratives that are built up in this moment and that become much more common later around the, the freedom of the automobile. Um, But obviously the people who are living in the city, the people who are getting around in those other ways, the people who are being harmed and killed by the automobiles, see that this is a problem, see that this is affecting them, that it's changing the norms that they are used to. um, And that's not acceptable. Right. And there do there are like movements that are formed in order to push back against. The automobile, in order to push back against this change that wealthier people are trying to push onto the street and the city. Um, you know, there are funeral parades to draw attention to the people who are dying. They, There are, um, you know, women who have their children died get like badges so that you can recognize that they've been affected. They ring the bells in the churches and the fire halls in order to draw attention to the deaths that are happening. There are even campaigns to um, get speed limiters installed on vehicles to reduce the. The amount of speeding that can actually happen on the roads. So there are many different ways that people start to push back against this imposition. And it's hardly, you know, natural or a given that the automobile is going to dominate in the way that it has today and the way that we're used to the automobile being this kind of mass form of transportation. And that's really kind of a, a divide and a fight that is happening in that moment in the early 1900s.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it it made me think of, um, do you know the white bicycle uh, phenomenon when a cyclist is killed in an accident that uh, an all white bicycle will be locked up in uh, at that site? I mean, that's, um, that's a, I I live in a little bubble in Northern California. I don't know what goes on elsewhere, but uh, is that a transnational phenomenon?
1: Yeah, no, it definitely yeah. occurs outside yeah. of Northern California. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what goes on out there. No, I'm, I'm adjacent to Silicon Valley. This is the center of the world, right? Yeah. <laughs> he says, ironically. Um, <laughs> um, so, um, you know, there, there's, I mean, there's the, the literal threat to one's life from these new, heavier, faster vehicles. Um, there's the, the change in the use of public space uh, on the roads and, and that, that, that by uh, association um a change in the sidewalk space i mean that that gets a new level of importance um it's something I've looked at in colonial cities where um suddenly that sidewalk area is is less an extension of the home or of the business and needs to be that that's where pedestrians have to be channeled to um, and um i mean there's just a restructuring of of urban social order um and there there's this this pushback. Um with the, the bell ringing I think you in is it in the Netherlands you talk about this organization? What was it? Uh, stop child stop murder. Stop the child
1: murder. Yeah. Stop <laughs>
0: the child murder. And the you know the the automobile is maligned as the modern Moloch and and he did a great job there. But then there's Yeah, it, any... it happens
1: at different periods, right? Like Part of what I'm talking about in the American city, a lot of that occurs in you know the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, because this is the moment when it's really rolling out in North America, and certainly there's a resurgence in opposition around the 60s and the 70s -hmm. as this is really being entrenched and pushed out as this mass kind of form of transportation, right? Um, And a lot of the opposition that I talk about in Europe happens a bit later, post World War II, again 60s and 70s, where you're seeing kind of you know. I'm sure not consciously, but the kind of return of many of these strategies that would have been seen in the 1920s in North America being used by groups in Europe to stop kind of the rollout and, and the changing of public space in order to privilege the automobile. And, you know, as you're saying, like the the name of this group says to really draw attention to the number of deaths that are being caused by the rollout of the automobile to really try to stop that. And certainly, you know, in countries like the Netherlands, in countries like Denmark, they're helped a lot by um, the oil shocks in the 1970s that you know, cause it to be much more expensive to drive a car and to, to fuel a car. Um, and so that really helps to change the policies and to entrench a different way of seeing transportation and and urban policy. Mm
0: -hmm. But, but, circling back just a little bit, um, as there's this initial disruption in the early 20th century and these protests, there's a pushback from, um, the, from financial interests, from organized capital, from what becomes the automobile industry and, and its adjacent, uh, commercial interests. Um, you know, how, how did they normalize these disruptions and, and normalize this reordering of public space and, and even death
1: in many ways. Right. Um, it it was certainly a concerted campaign because you had, as you were saying, a group of industries that saw that they could profit immensely from changing the transportation system and the way that communities are built in order to enable, um, the, the mass ownership of automobiles and the suburbanization of society, by extension of that, right? So you have the auto, the automotive companies who would be making the vehicles themselves and and selling them, and the dealers that they're connected with. You have the suppliers to those companies, like rubber providers and things like that, who would be supplying the raw materials in order to make the the products. You have the oil companies, of course, who would benefit immensely from their product being used much more in a in a much um, deeper way, because everyone is going to have to buy gas or diesel in order to, to fill up and fuel their cars. Um, you have construction interests, of course, who would benefit from the build out of the roads and highways that would be needed for this, but also the new communities that would, you know, be created as a result of automobility and also labor groups, um, who, you know, would benefit from the manufacture of these vehicles, the unionized jobs that came along with it. Certainly that was a fight. It was not something that was natural that these would be unionized jobs. Um, and many interests beyond that, right? There were many different people and many different groups who would benefit from this change. Um, And so part of what happened in order to defeat, you know, the opposition that the automobile was seeing was a collaboration between the automotive interests and newspapers, you know, the local media at the time. Um, in order to ensure that auto crashes and the automobile were presented in a different way. You know, so the narratives around the automobile start to be created in this moment in a really like not just from the PR departments of the auto companies, but then having that pushed out by the newspapers as well, because they become really dependent on, you know, the auto companies buying advertising, even paying for dedicated sections in the newspaper that are about automobiles, things that, you know, many people are familiar with, I'm sure. But because of that financial relationship, the newspapers come on side as well and so start to change the way that people are thinking about it. And one of the things that Peter Norton describes really well is how there is this campaign to change the way that people think about the streets, right? He talks about there needing to be a physical reconstruction of the street because we, as we were talking about, it worked in a very different way before, Um, but also a social reconstruction. So we began to see the street in a different way, not as a place that was shared, not as a place that we could use, but that was for cars and that we could only cross at the crosswalks. And if we didn't do that, we were jaywalkers. And being a jaywalker meant that, you know, you weren't um, attuned to what it meant to live in a city, right? You were a hick, you were from the countryside, you didn't get it. Um, And so, you know, if you were of the city, you weren't a jaywalker and you knew you had to cross at the crosswalks um, because that was how it works. Um, And so that was a real way of entrenching the dominance of the automobile and the kind of takeover of the automobile of this space that was previously shared by many different people and many different modes of mobility, uh, effectively. Um, And so, you know, that's really a push by this group of capitalist interests that see a very clear profit opportunity from changing um, how society works, from changing the physical construction of society, how we think about the way that we get around, how we think about how we live and how our community should be built in order to benefit them. And, you know, a real key piece of that is lobbying the government in order to get the government on side. Um, and that is not only about ideas of, economic progress that's associated with ideas especially in the cold war around needing the population to be more dispersed uh, because there's a concerns about nuclear weapons and nuclear attacks so if you spread out the population um you know, there's there's less of a target, there's less of a risk if there's a nuclear attack, and there's also a desire to think about labor. You know, when people get around on streetcars or trains, labor has a lot of control over the transportation system. Um, this is something I don't go into as much in the book, but then mm-hmm. if you have everyone driving their own cars, certainly the people who are making the cars can go on strike and disrupt the production, but you're not really disrupting the actual transportation itself because everyone owns their own little vehicle and the vehicles aren't going on strike in the way that a train conductor or something can go on strike. So there are many different reasons why these interests are going after this change. Um and I think, you know, many decades on we can see that there were a lot of Negative consequences of that, of externalities of that change, that we really need to deal with, um, and that the solutions we're presented with often don't really reckon with in the way that we need.
0: Yeah, fantastic, and I, I love that that point about organized labor and um, railways and public transportation. I mean, the the Russian Revolution, um, the Vietnamese Revolution, the Indian the Indonesian Revolution. Railway workers play such an important role, both in their ability to strike, but also in their ability. To um, seize the control of the spread of information, and to to be propagandists, but um, we could go, go down a whole other sidetrack side on that. Um, so you, you you lay out this history of the, the rise of automobility and and as an industry, and then um, then you move on to um, flat out attacking. Uh, A number of myths about the Silicon Valley ethos, uh, the California ideology. Um, And I appreciate how you laid out the cultural, economic, and political, which oftentimes the political claims to be apolitical, which is actually political, um, uh, patterns. Um, And these are things that I've been observing in Northern California for more decades than I would like to admit since I first showed up here <laughs> as a college freshman but coming on forty years um but i i mean i've I've really had a i live in Santa Cruz California and i've really had sort of a uh a ringside seat to watching the again this this mixing of the um the culture and the economics and the politics of that unique Silicon Valley um, phenomenon. So, for, first, what what is the California ideology? Where where does it stem from? What does it promise? Um, uh, how how is it full of shit? And uh, how has it failed us?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think just to preface it, I would yeah. say like Silicon Valley really comes out of like you know the tech industry that we know as Silicon Valley today really does come out of the second world war and the funding that the US government is pushing and, and the, into and the
0: Cold War. The
1: DARPA yeah, absolutely money, right? I mean the absolutely war, but
0: then the Cold War. I mean I'm sorry to interrupt, but go
1: on. No, you're <laughs> yeah. you're exactly right. I was just gonna say, you know, yep. it really starts in the second world war when this money is flowing, yep. but then it's really the Cold War that entrenches it, right? And the continuation of this funding. Because post uh, World War II. There is a slight drop off in this defense funding immediately, but then after Sputnik, after the Soviet Union launches the Sputnik satellite, that's when all this money starts flooding right back in, and really kind of pushes the development of of these technologies and things in the Bay Area, and really cements you know its its position that it has today, and you know really ensures that, or, or really shows how the state and and the federal government and all the money coming from the defense department in particular is essential to creating what we know today as the tech industry. And it would not exist without it. And, and also just to say that in that moment, the tech industry is a very, or, you know, the, the electronics industry at the time, you know, what is, and, and the defense industry that is related to it, uh, semiconductors, all these sorts of things are very, um, conservative, right? It's a very conservative industry, very conservative set of people. Um, because, you know, what we often associate with the tech industry is what happens later in the 60s and 70s, right? Where there's a pushback against that culture by the counterculture, by these particular libertarian ideas of, you know, politics, of, of change, of, You know how things should work. Essentially, Um, part of that is associated with the opposition to the Vietnam War and things like that. But one of the things that Fred Turner, who who you know wrote about this in From Counterculture to Cyberculture, really digs into in his history is how there are two particular parts of the the counterculture that he focuses on. Right? One is the new left. One is this you know focus on political action and needing to seek political change through organization through engagement with the political system and then there's another one that he calls i believe the new counterculturalist or or something of that new communalist new that communalist that's yeah. it yep absolutely uh you know I, more, I, more I, of the I,
0: hip- I, read, I read your book
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, you you know, more the hippie types, right? And their, their kind of response to what is going on is not to say that we need organizing and political action, but rather that we need personal transformation, right? We need these psychedelic experiences, um, and, and other kinds of experiences that were, you know, popular at the time, um, and that is the way that we change society through this individual change, not through seeking collective action, right? And so then if we move forward to the Californian ideology, as you're talking about, these ideas are really picked up in the work of Stuart Brand and the Whole Earth Catalog, which is, you know, kind of um, mythologized in the history of Silicon Valley really prominently. Certainly there are questions about whether it actually plays as big of a role as, you know, it, it's often said to play in in the histories that powerful people in silicon valley like to tell no um, I,
0: I, I remember as as a freshman in the mid 80s at uc santa cruz the the sort of whole earth uh mythology and the you know old copies of uh, the catalog floating around and then the the there's a reincarnation as uh, a different journal um
1: yeah just Coevolution uh, quarterly i believe
0: yeah yeah and then they had the um they had some sort of HQ in the East Bay kind of thing, and there was this. I never really quite got it, but like a bunch of my friends who are much more going down. I mean, they're, they're they they've been, they've had you know several decades in the tech industry since then, but they were very much a part of that. And it was definitely from this um, countercultural psychedelic uh, <laughs> um, in uh, using. Um, it was, it, 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 it was anti-establishment yet there was something else going on. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but continue.
1: No, absolutely. I'm, I'm it, I,
0: I was there. I saw it. I saw the tail end of this.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like it, it was very much positioned as anti-establishment, but yeah. one of the things, yeah. you know, I was talking to Malcolm Harris recently, who has a book out, a history book next year on, on California, Northern California, Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the things in it, it, the book is called Palo Alto. One of the mm-hmm. things that he talks about is how, you know, it was presented as anti-establishment, but in many ways it, it, you know, was kind of helpful to the establishment because it didn't challenge it in a, in a pretty significant way. Right. And so, yep. you know, the Californian ideology is something that is written about and, 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 posited by Richard Barbroke and Andy Cameron academics in the UK. And they basically say, so, you know, you have this kind of idea of personal liberty of individual liberty that comes out of this moment in the counterculture. And that's really influential in the Bay Area. Um, And then in the 1980s, that merges with these neoliberal ideas that are emerging at the time from people like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And so you have the the combination of individual empowerment, this kind of counterculture libertarianism with the kind of neoliberal economics, the faith in the free market of, you know, Ronald Reagan's project effectively and Ronald Reagan is certainly very closely connected with the tech industry as well you know as he's cutting everything else in the government it continues to get subsidies um he's he's happy to promote that and at that moment, we start to see that kind of narrative of the tech industry as this site of kind of entrepreneurial activity, this the, the focus on the free market really emerging, and the history of its involvement in continued connection to the state and reliance on public subsidies um, being kind of diminished and, and hidden away.
0: Yeah, and that was really important. And you you, you touch on that um, at several points. I mean, there's this idea of the the entrepreneur as this sort of individual on this path of self-actualization. And it's, it's almost Ayn Randian maybe. Absolutely.
1: And that's, that's, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, there's but a as, lot of, there's a lot of tech folks and tech billionaires who love Ayn Rand. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, again, being, being individual entrepreneurs, uh, allegedly coming from the counterculture, but they're all sucking at the teat of the federal government with this DARPA money. And I don't know, I, I, that seems a little socialist, right? I mean, <laughs> at the very least, a little Genzian. I mean, it's there's huge amounts of money. And, um, you know, your um, uh, your boy, uh, Elon Musk, I mean, he has this whole mythology of this entrepreneur, but he's a massive recipient of federal funds. Um, I, I don't – I mean, I've, I don't know the numbers, but it's, it sounds like most of his projects really couldn't have got off the ground without um, – uh, no pun intended in regards to SpaceX. Um, um, yeah, d- sorry, dad jokes. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, um, but couldn't have got off the ground without this huge influx of, of taxpayer money.
1: Yeah, it's and, billions and, and, and billions and billions of dollars, right? That has made Elon Musk possible, right? He, he really is like a public-private partnership, <laughs> like yeah. Elon Musk.
0: And, the, and, the, and the, this, this culture of Silicon Valley silences that. And focuses so much on the individual and then even the, you know, the, the venture capitalist as this, uh, this, this hero type figure, you know, um, absolutely ignoring that these are, these are state funded projects.
1: And the other, the other piece I would add, you know, so we were talking about the kind of libertarian counterculture, you know, libertarian countercultural ideas, um, the neoliberal economics, how these things are brought together in the California ideology. And the third piece of this, which is really important for Silicon Valley is the, the faith in technology, the techno determinism, right? So it's not just the personal empowerment. It's not just the faith in the free market, but also the faith in technology. And so we can have these seemingly apolitical solutions. We don't need to deal with the political system, even though we're being heavily funded by the federal government. Um, but we can talk about and we can you know, put out the idea that how we improve society is not through engaging in the political system like this earlier kind of um, rift between the new left and the new communalists, but through having faith in technology and investing in innovation and Having new technologies emerge, and that is the way that we improve society, not through having to deal with the uh, the difficulty of politics and having to wade into that realm, but rather, you know, we just rely on the market, we rely on technology, and that is the way that we improve individual lives.
0: But the, but that but that is politics, right? I and mean, that that is that is a political choice, Absolutely. right? I mean, it's but pretending it's a political, and and that resonates so much with that taking the DARPA money, but pretending you're uh, a brave entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh man, it makes me want to pull my hair out.
1: Um, and so many of these companies like, you know, Apple was getting small business loans from yeah. the federal government to help it succeed. You know, Google emerges from Stanford University. It was a project that was funded by the National Science Foundation, I believe it was before it was privatized and spun off. You know, Yahoo, many of these other kind of early tech and internet companies were uh, emerged from the university system were publicly funded people who are PhD candidates and whatnot, you know, working on these projects and then privatizing them. And, you know, then, that's obviously built on top of a technology like the internet, which was previously the ARPANET, which was developed with all this public funds over the course of many decades. Like, you know, the government is really key to this whole story, but it works for Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley needs to kind of write it out of the history so it can present itself as, you know, creating these technologies and making these changes and being kind of the actor that we need to rely on in order to improve the world when there, I think there's very little evidence that that's the case
0: yeah and it's not just about self mythologizing but it also leads to uh well i mean it's it's an attempt to do an end run around future polit- political possibilities because if as a taxpayer um my money has gone to create the system shouldn't i have a share in that shouldn't it be dare i say um a public good? Shouldn't, couldn't it be nationalized? Um, how, how did my tax money go to create a private entity, um, whose decisions I may or may not agree with? Um, but that's all crazy silly talk, right?
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. We can't talk about that.
0: So, so um, again, let me say I love the book. Uh, very persuaded by your analysis. Um, totally on board. But, man, did it annoy me that you just systematically exploded so many things that I, you know, had thought at one point were smart and, and eco, <laughs> eco-conscious moves. I mean, electric cars, ride-sharing, dockless e-bikes, and so on, and without emitting guilt. <laughs> um, I, I need to ask you a few things. Um, first, um, you know, that you have a chapter where you, you argue that EVs, electric vehicles, are, are greenwashed. And so let me ask you, you know, aside from the hubcap that keeps coming off, uh, the annoying squeaking when I drive on city roads... The poor visibility, the terrible climate control, which freezes my midsection and roasts my head, uh, the way it forces me to be even more reliant on my cell phone, and the chance that it will lock me inside when it catches on fire. Uh, what's wrong with my beloved Tesla? Uh, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's just fantastic that I can go from zero to 60 in a second and and then keep going to really spectacularly unsafe spe- unsafe speeds, which I have not been trained to drive at, let me tell you. I mean, come on, it's electric vehicle. What's it's 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 taking a combustion engine off the road isn't isn't that a good thing isn't that a net good
1: yeah and let's just hope that you don't have uh, autopilot on when a kid runs out in front of your vehicle as we're finding out with these videos that are going around now <laughs> um but you know i i think it's an important question right and i i always need to preface these answers by saying that I'm, I'm not anti-EV, right? I think that electric vehicles have an important role to play in reducing the transportation emissions and you know the contribution of the transportation system to climate change. My concern is that they're often treated as the silver bullet, right? All that we need to do is electrify the transportation fleet, electrify all of our personal vehicles, have this big changeover of millions and millions of of new vehicles that we need to build with batteries, and then everything is solved. We don't need to worry. My argument is that, you know, the electric vehicle is in many cases an improvement over the internal combustion engine vehicle. But it's not as big. It's not as big of an improvement as it's kind of presented to be when we talk about it as a zero emissions vehicle. That's just not accurate, and not just because you know it's, it can be fueled by fossil fuel energy when you plug it in, but rather importantly because of the battery that is within the vehicle. But also, you know, emissions are not just what goes up into the atmosphere and and causes or you know is is related to climate change is helping to warm the planet but also there's a lot of local air pollution that has you know harmful health impacts on people And that is not from the tailpipe, but many of those particulate, the the particulate matter that causes that comes from tire wear, brake wear, dust that's kicked up from the road. And electric vehicles are heavier than internal combustion vehicles because of their battery. And so they actually have a chance of creating more of that local air pollution, which uh, an MIT study estimated causes more than 50,000 premature deaths in the United States every single year. And so that's really significant, right? Um, And so, you know, to pick up back on the on the battery point. This is the thing about, you know, the electric vehicle that is most concerning to me, right? Obviously, one of the or one of the reasons beyond climate change that the internal combustion engine vehicle and the reliance on fossil fuels is presented as this really negative thing is also because of the environmental impact of the fossil fuel industry around the world, not just in terms of climate change, but what it actually does to local environments where these fossil fuels are extracted when they're transported, you know, obviously think back to the BP disaster in the Gulf of Mexico, but there are many other massive oil spills. The Donziger
0: case, what Donziger was uh, exposing in, in Latin America. Look at the, um, the, uh, the Delta in um, Nigeria. Um, I mean, it's yeah. horrifying. Absolutely horrifying.
1: Yeah, and and so you know when we think about what. going to have the future of the transportation system look like the question is okay we obviously want to take that on we don't want to have that continue because that is incredibly harmful and so what is you know coming in its place especially at this moment where we have this really unique opportunity to rethink the transportation system that we've actually built and, and what the impacts of that are and i would argue that the impacts of the electric vehicle are being downplayed because, you know, we want this kind of clean green image, this zero emissions image of the electric vehicle that is going to save us from climate change. When to create that battery, there's a whole load of minerals that need to be extracted to go into it. And we know how, you know, harmful The mining industry is already with the local environmental impacts that it causes, with the use of water that comes out of that, with how it harms local communities and workers who work in these sites. You know, the cobalt, which is required for these batteries, a lot of that comes out of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, where, you know, there's health There's terrible health impacts, you know, children who are affected by this um, child laborers who extract some of those minerals and they get into the supply chains. And, you know, that's just like, you know. The tip of the iceberg with yeah, yeah, the problems I mean, b- with, with and cobalt. B-
0: right? Blinken's in that part of the world right now, and um, one of the issues that's being addressed is both um, uh, the DRC and uh, the Kagame regime uh, funding various militias uh, that are fighting yep. over this land. That is is oftentimes uh, presented as part of the, this long history of inter-ethnic uh, genocidal conflict, but it's it's fighting over uh, um, rare earth resources and, and mining. absolutely
1: really going on it funds all these conflicts right And, and this is something that like we know like it's not something that's hidden away like as as you're saying like it's very well known and then if we look at latin america where a lot of future lithium production is going to come from in the lithium triangle between chile south america and bolivia um you know even there as well people are saying you know they've made promises to us in terms of what benefits we're going to get out of lithium production and extraction. And often the local communities, the indigenous communities who are around those sites of extraction say, we don't get those things. Meanwhile, our water is being polluted. The water table is dropping because it's using so much water. So we have less access to fresh water. You know, we're not getting the financial benefits that come of it. And obviously there are harms to the local ecosystems and things like that as well. Now, some of those governments are looking at nationalizing lithium in order to ensure that they get those kind of benefits. I saw a
0: tweet, uh, Regarding those governments' attempts yeah. to nationalize the lithium, right? Uh, uh, somebody said, "We'll coup who we want," which um, resonated with um, you know the history of the overthrow of Allende and um, yep. the role of um, <laughs> Anaconda Copper. Family connection there. Um, in um, in 1973, uh, one of the things I, I teach in the Cold War is the um, the, the letters between um, Kissinger and Rockefeller about. Um, uh, what this what this darn fool Allende is up to in Chile and how it's going to threaten uh, Rock, Rockefeller's clients' financial interests and uh, could you please do something about this Henry? Uh, these two guys are writing to each other on vacation. I mean, it's it's we, we've got the smoking guns on these things and we're and we're we're seeing it again. So um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I,
1: I completely agree. I, and I think just to kind of close that point yeah, on the batteries, yeah, yeah. like it's not just the extraction that's happening now, right? Yeah. What is being presented to us is this mass increase in the number of electric vehicles that is going to need to be produced. And that means the number of batteries that are going to need to be produced to go inside those vehicles. And so the um, International Energy Agency estimates that this is going to result in increases in demand for some of these minerals of over 4,200% for lithium, over 2,000 percent for cobalt. So these are really massive increases in demand for the minerals, and that's going to mean more extraction, more production, and more harms that are going to come of that as well. As new mines are kind of rapidly opened and and expanded around the world in order to meet this demand, because you know the expectation is that we're going to have this you know this this transition in a very short period of time. And so my concern is that if our focus is just on maintaining automobility and maintaining the personal automobile as the means through which we all get around rather than challenging the automobile and car dependence and trying to get more and more people out of automobiles, that there's going to be really serious environmental harms as a result of that in the places where this extraction is happening, mainly in the global south, but more of it will be happening in the global north as well um, as these things escalate. And, you know, it doesn't need to happen if we really pay attention to what would be a more sustainable transportation system. And, you know, as I talk about in the book, when we go back to the early days of automobility and we see the kind of large scale transformation that happened in that moment, how the state was really essential to building out the infrastructure of the automobile and ensuring that this transition could happen in reshaping communities and transportation networks, the state could step in once again and, you know, really rethink the way that we get around, the way that we build communities, change the regulations, the incentives, the subsidies, the tax structures in order to foment those changes. But we don't see that desire among our governments because um, automakers and, you know, that The auto interest that I talked about, with the exception of the oil companies, see a huge opportunity um, in the build out of the electric vehicles and selling all of these electric vehicles. Um, You know, it can create a lot of growth and profits and GDP and all these sorts of things. Um, Mm -hmm. And they don't want that to be disrupted because that's much more profitable to the system and beneficial to the system than if we were to say, "Okay, everyone ditch your cars and get in the bus. Um, you don't need to own a car anymore. You don't need to pay for maintenance, pay for insurance, pay for gas or, or power for your vehicle. Um, it takes a lot of those costs out and that's not great for, you know, the way that we've set up the system at the moment.
0: right. So, I mean, the the real issue then is, as you're saying is, is the whole paradigm of automobility as opposed to reliable, efficient, um, Public transportation, mass transit, and um, the way that's developed in the twentieth century, and then, and then you you know you you offer just the horrifying um, uh, examples. Again, it's, it's another smoking gun situation where you have the head of uh, Tesla, uh, Elon Musk, actively trying to stop high speed rail in California because it will threaten his uh, his business interests. Um, and the way which that whole project part of the pun, um, got derailed, um, they're coming fast and furious. um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, like we see this, I would argue that this has been one of Elon Musk's biggest contributions to transportation in the past two decades is really to try to stifle alternatives to the automobile, right? Because he'll say that Tesla is the company that's doing the most in the world to, um, you know, take on climate change to reduce climate change. That's a paraphrase, but it's something that he texted um, Bill Gates, and, and you know, something he said publicly as well. Um, when, but when he's actually like had the opportunity to speak about these things or or try to promote changes, he does the opposite, right? If you see cities that are trying to move forward on transit, you see him come in and say, "Ah, but we have Boring Company, and we can make these tunnels for cars that'll solve." that'll solve traffic right even though that's not a real solution but it helps to disrupt these ideas and the desire to invest in transit autonomous vehicles does the same thing why would you have everyone in cars why would you build new transit infrastructure when we're just going to have autonomous vehicles in a few years and everyone can be in their little pod and get around that way right that has been used even in campaigns in nashville and other places in order to defeat ballot measures that would invest more in in transit um He's admitted to his biographer that when high speed rail in California was getting off the ground, when this project was being promoted and and people were having to vote on it and things like that, he proposed the Hyperloop system specifically to try to get uh, high speed rail canceled and his initial proposal for Hyperloop was that, you know, yes, it would be this pod system in these vacuum tubes, it would be incredibly cheap to build, which was a lie. Um, Everything about it was a lie. But the initial idea was that we were going to put cars in those pods. And So you could take your car with you and fire that between L.A. and San Francisco. And of course, you know, there's no dream of having a Hyperloop in the next few decades. That's a complete fantasy, but it did help to embolden those people who didn't want to see California high-speed rail succeed. And certainly we've seen it run into a lot of trouble since, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, But time and time again, Elon Musk gets involved to disrupt alternatives to pr- to allow people to get out of their cars, right? To ensure that they don't need to be dependent on cars because he is an automaker. But even beyond that, he believes and he wants to ensure that he can stay in his automobile and that, you know, automobility in general won't be disrupted because him as a billionaire, as a really rich guy, doesn't want to be on transit, doesn't want to be on the train next to other people, right? He wants to be in his individual a, you know, exclusionary automobile that, so he doesn't need to be around others.
0: Yeah. We, we, without d- dwelling too much on this one individual. I mean, I'm a, a firm opponent of the great man in history, but, um, boy, is this guy have an oversized impact. Um, one of the, the things that you note is that so many of his, um, alleged solutions come from his individual frustrations. He doesn't want to be stuck in traffic with poor people. He doesn't want to be on a uh, public transit with, you know, maybe a mass murderer. Um, um, And uh, there's all sorts of other solutions that are, uh, you know, beyond that, that cliche of first world problems, the problems of one percenters that get pitched to um, pitched as uh, solutions for society as a whole. So the tunnels, I mean, the, 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 the tunnel that he proposes the one from, um, from what Brentwood or, or, um, Beverly Hills to, to his, uh, workplace out at the airport, um, exactly. where SpaceX is headquartered. I mean, they're all a function of their frustrations and, and the same thing with the, the, the origins of Uber, correct? Um, that this was, you know, rolled out as, um, uh, quick and easy and cheap transportation for everybody and boy in those early years gosh uber was fantastic Uh, especially because i live in a town with which had like barely any taxi cabs i mean it'd be like an, an hour hour and a half wait for one taxi um so having having uber was fantastic but but you you get back to the point you chart that this was the origin of uh of uh rich tech elite problems could you could you speak to that
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, Travis Kalanick and and his friend who he co-founded it with, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Um, But their real motivation for creating Uber was that it was hard for them to get a black cab in San Francisco. It was inconvenient, right? And so they and decided cab,
0: what would it, a black cab is a, a fancy high is that like a, a town car a chartered car? yeah a,
1: a black car okay. actually sorry that's the I don't, but I don't, yeah I don't, it's one of the town cars I right
0: in, i don't live in that world um yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, but that was the yeah. original motivation right yeah. and that's what yeah. uber was in the beginning that's why it has this kind of black sleek advertising uh, stuff uh, like that right it was it was the wealthier one and then when lyft comes along and has like mm. the funny mustaches and stuff like that and it's just regular cars that's when uber had to expand with UberX into, you know, really taking on the taxi market in in that in that sense. Right. And so it's motivated by the desires of people like Travis Kalanick, his desire to more easily, cheaply access um, a town car. But then, you know, it's blown out beyond that um, when they try to take on the taxi industry. really to disrupt that. And one of the things that I think is important there, and it's something that Hubert Horan, who has been a longtime critic of Uber and, you know, he's a transportation consultant has worked for decades in in the transport sector, really picked up on and really illustrated was how there was a push in the 1990s to further deregulate the taxi industry by, you know, the Koch brothers and other kind of libertarian and business groups who wanted to see that happen. And it was largely a failure. It, It didn't completely succeed. And so when Uber was looking to roll out its service, it kind of picked up the playbook of that campaign in the 1990s, that deregulatory campaign, um, you know, wielded its language, took out, you know, used the tools that it had kind of developed uh, a couple decades earlier or decade or so earlier um, in order to benefit itself, right? In order to benefit its business model. And so Uber. Uh, ensured that it wasn't treated as a taxi company, that it was instead a transportation network company. And so it didn't have the regulation on fares. It didn't have the regulation on the number of vehicles that could be on the road at one time. And so it really decimated and destroyed the taxi regulations. Um, and it promised it was going to be for everyone. As you said, it was promised it was going to make all of these like big improvements to the city, to how people got around. And when we actually look at it a few years later, when academics actually studied it, what they found was that it made traffic worse. Um, You know, it did not really serve the underserved in the communities that it said it was going to serve Um, the emissions from Their service was higher than if people had just got around in another way. It took people from transit services rather than complementing them. And the people who were mainly served by it were young college educated people earning above average income in cities. Um, And so these are not really the kind of people who are disadvantaged transportation wise in in the mobility sector. you know, it further benefited people like Travis Kalanick and like the tech workers who are often coming up with these ideas and developing these solutions. It didn't really, you know, solve the problems it claimed. And then during the pandemic, we saw the service get even worse. Prices got even higher, got harder to, you know, actually get an Uber. Um, and so you start to see what the service is going to look like when the company actually has to deliver a profit, something that has still failed to do.
0: That's that's actually something I want uh, you to... Uh, to speak a bit more about, so when Uber first rolled out, I was like, why is this so cheap? <laughs> like, I mean, not, not, okay. I live in a, I live in a taxi desert, but then also like, this is really, really affordable. I, like, like it's mind boggling cheap. How could, how can this company make money, um, with these cheap rides?
1: Yeah, because but, it wasn't, right? they, they, they
0: weren't making money, right? Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they were heavily subsidized by venture capitalists who wanted to, um, kind of emulate a model that was really pioneered or or really formed by Amazon, where you know it it lost money early on for like its first decade or something, um, in order to capture market share, and then once it had that market share, it rapidly increase its profits. But, you know, Amazon still invested a lot in the business, so it could grow into the kind of monopolist with its kind of, you know, uh, hands in everything that it is today. And so the desire of these venture capitalists was to build more companies like Amazon, and Uber was going to be one of those, it was going to take over transportation around the world. um, And then once it took that over it would be able to turn that into profits but the problem there was that the uber business model was not the Amazon business model Amazon is in logistics and also in cloud computing those are their primary industries and so you can really take advantage of um, economics of scale there in order to get these profits and and get these benefits of you know growth effectively to reduce the, the kind of cost of, of growth uber that's not really the case right you're running a taxi service your main um, expenses are the vehicles, the drivers, the gas, the maintenance, things like that, And those things don't change so much with scale, especially when you don't have a fleet as Uber didn't. It forced all the drivers to drive their own vehicles. So you don't get those kind of benefits of having a fleet. And one of the things that Hubert Horen argues, and I think very effectively, and I think he's correct, is that the Uber business model, even though it's presented as innovative and efficient because it has this app that you use from your phone, is actually less efficient than the traditional taxi model, Because it has these high costs with the expensive headquarters and, you know, the executives earning millions of dollars a year and the high priced, you know, tech people who are building out the apps and all this sorts of stuff, the data collection operation, Um, whereas, you know, a regular taxi company doesn't have all those extra costs. Plus, it has the fleet of vehicles that it's able to maintain and get some degree of benefit there. Um, and so the taxi company is actually the more efficient model, is, is actually the better model. You know, And many of these companies have adopted apps in the years that have followed Uber and, and as Uber has rolled out. But Uber appeared more efficient and appeared better because its price was so much lower. And that was subsidized by these venture capitalists. Uber lost billions of dollars a year. Um, I can't remember the total figure, the estimated total figure of what it's lost since it began but it's in the tens of billions of dollars. And this is a company that still can't turn a profit, even as it's really trying to post pandemic, you know, you'll see headlines every now and then that they'd have turned a profit or something like that. But that's usually just because Uber uses this really um, interesting uh, accounting metric. Um, this adjusted, uh, I can't remember the the way to pronounce the the um, abbreviation now, but essentially You know, for many companies, they exclude about 5% of their expenses uh, when they report their earnings. In Uber's most recent uh, reportings, it excluded, I believe it was 38% of its expenses um, with this kind of uh, interesting accounting metric that it uses. And so even when it claims to be profitable, that's a lie because it's just, you know, excluding all of its expenses from the calculation. So Uber is not profitable. It's never been profitable. That's why it looked like it was so efficient. and yeah, it's uh, not a great company.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and 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 historically, I'll I'll point out that that it's rises during this era of unprecedented low interest rates, basically yep. free money being tossed around. And I think the the trash future guys are really good at pointing yep. this uh pointing this out that um uh that with the in the rising interest rates, we're we're going to see a real shakeup in. Many of these firms, I mean, they they talk about a lot in in regards to Netflix and, you know, will, will all this garbage get produced? Will the model of produce a hundred shows and you get one stranger things out of it? Um, what's that going to mean for the future? Um, yeah. And we're already seeing all
1: those things start to shift, right? As interest rates are going up and yeah, all that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, let me ask you. Um where the hell is my self-driving car? Um let alone my flying car. I live uh, I live in Santa Cruz near near the Joby headquarters. And know quite a few people who work at Joby, so I actually get a lot of this Joby talk, which um, I'm very polite about. But um, the idea of <laughs> taking all the problems of automobility and putting it 400 feet above a city—that doesn't seem safe to me. Um, but what what what's the 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 failure of the, the self driving car promise and um, and other other tech solutions like flying cars and so forth?
1: Yeah. It, it's just, it's just ridiculous. And I'll try to be brief on it. I can yeah, see that yeah. we're, that we're going yeah, a little over time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, the self-driving car was really sold to us as this thing that was really going to transform mobility and solve all these problems with the automotive transportation system, right? All of the negatives of automotive transportation effectively, were going to be solved with this technology, right? Very kind of convenient framing, you know, as we've been talking about something that Silicon Valley loves to do. Um, It was supposed to arrive within a few years. You know, early 2010s was really when we started to hear about this. in the mid-2010s was really when it was at a fever pitch with Google and Uber and Tesla all kind of pushing these ideas, but many of the other companies getting on board. Then in 2018, that's a real turning point in this this kind of discourse. There's a crash in Tempe, Arizona with an Uber vehicle that kills a pedestrian. And finally, this is the moment where a lot of people in the industry, Tesla excluded, um, start to say, okay, we overestimated this. It's not going to be this kind of um, technology that is in every car and that changes everything, and there's never any drivers anymore. Um, now we need to admit that this is something that's going to not only take longer to develop; it's going to require, as someone at Volkswagen says, a very specific set of um, qualities within a city: good weather, high-quality roads, you know, up-to-date mapping of the environment so that the vehicle knows where it's going and, and what issues it's going to run into. Um, and that the level five autonomous vehicle that is able to operate everywhere at any time is probably never going to arrive. And this is something, you know, virtually all these companies accept now that, you know, it may always need some degree of human intervention and it may only work in geofenced areas, not absolutely everywhere. Tesla is the exception to that, that continues to lie and say that they will develop um, autonomous driving. It's always like a year or two away. Um, Elon Musk likes to say that it will be able to work anywhere um, you know and that your your vehicle will start earning you a ton of money because it will become a robo taxi it, it's all a real lie we're starting to see the regulators, st- you know start to crack down on that the California DMV just said the other day that they're going to follow a ruling in Munich a few years ago um and say that you know autopilot and full self driving are misleading consumers and and you know don't actually deliver what they claim to um and you know obviously you've said the flying cars as well i just think that's a complete joke and it has always been a joke these um these vertical takeoff and landing vehicles that these companies are developing, I think they can certainly fit into like a niche that the helicopter occupies right now. Maybe it will improve upon what the helicopter does and serve a few more purposes. But mainly the people who will be using this will be like rich people and tourists going on, you know, trips and things like that, like you know, little tours and whatnot of of a city or of a location. But it's not going to be some kind of mass transportation system as Uber and some of these companies try to sell us. It's just completely unrealistic. And if it started to happen very, very quickly, I think you'd get a lot of people on the ground getting very angry about all of, you know, the vehicles that are overhead. And eventually one or two of them would fall out of the sky and that would shut it all down anyway.
0: Oh, I mean, I I live in a very beautiful place and everybody in our neighborhood is annoyed with just the little drones with cameras of people doing, you know, footage of the, of the coastline and so forth. Now just imagine that with people or cargo, or what, what have you. Um, and, and we are, we are pressed for time, but um, I want you to say a few words about um, uh, micro mobility and e-scooters mm-hmm. and e-bikes, um, you know, they were rolled, rolled out in various uh, cities and over the past couple of years. And Hey, everybody loves them, right? I mean, what, <laughs> fresh air, fun. Uh, what's, what's not to love. What's wrong with uh, the micro mobility. And in here, I think it's, it's, it's maybe a bit more nuanced as with electric vehicles, like, Yes, this could be a solution, but the way that Silicon Valley has rolled this out in a for-profit model maybe is not the best solution.
1: If I exactly, yeah. An- answer, you know, answer
0: the question the, by asking it. <laughs>
1: yeah, like, as we've been talking about, I think that we do need to have fewer people in automobiles, right? And mm-hmm. people need good alternatives to that. Um, and so when these micromobility services, which I define, because there are several definitions of this term, but I define it as the dockless bike and scooter services that have rolled out, you know, over the past five years or so in North America and Europe, um, you know, kind of building on models that came from China before that, you um, You know, they really claimed that they were going to change the way that people got around. That they were going to offer this new means of mobility for for cities. All these great things, right? I think that we can see that this experiment has largely failed. Um, Maybe we can say it kicked off a conversation about streets and and you know who had rights to the streets when they came out. Uh, And in part, that was because a lot of people were really angry when they started to take over the sidewalks and block, you know, this. Block the sidewalks, especially for um, people with disabilities and wheelchairs, things like that, um, and without thinking about what the impact would be on those people. But I, I would say that when it comes to the dockless bikes and scooters, I don't think that they've had a significant impact on really changing. Um, you know the the material consequences of the city changing the actual street and how that is distributed. Um, they've had a lot of negative externalities with you know as I said blocking the streets for people and you know potentially denying people access to to the sidewalks that you know people should have access to. Um, but it's, the real isn't problem isn't that sort of
0: isn't that sort of user a user issue like you have a jerk who just leaves the scooter or the bike in the middle of the sidewalk um, and and isn't, you know, following like really obvious etiquette. I mean, is that the problem of the technology or the business model? Um, I mean, yeah, that's I
1: the would... user who left it there. I mean, it it t- tells you on the bike no, well, it- I would, I would, I would put it on. You know, certainly we can say user error, but I would also put it on the company for enabling that, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, Aaron Gordon, who's a journalist at Motherboard, did a really good investigation into Jump Bikes, which was previously called Social Bicycles, right? Yeah. And yeah. before they adopted this dockless model, like before they were acquired by Uber and really changed their business model, their whole thing was to work with communities to you know, have consultations to see what the community actually needed and then to make an agreement with the city in order to roll out a bicycle system, a, you know, docked or in some cases dockless um, that actually served the needs and that if they were dockless had really um, like thick locks on them so that when they were attached to like a a bicycle rack or something, they couldn't easily be stolen or anything like that. And there was a requirement that they would be, you know, locked onto the rack, right? So you couldn't just drop it on the sidewalk or something like that. And that was a, A Very conscious design decision. And it took a little bit of time for those consultations to happen. But it ensured that the system actually served the needs of the community. What we see with the micromobility companies, the dockless bike and scooter companies that emerged like around 2018, is that that doesn't really exist, right? They have a ton of money from these venture capital firms. And their goal is just to take over. And so they come into these cities, they drop all these vehicles on the sidewalks and they don't have these kinds of, um, you know, requirements that they be locked. And if, if with the bikes, they do need to be locked, the locks become really flimsy so they can easily be broken or cut. Um, the scooters themselves, they don't need to be Uh, locked to anything and they can just be thrown on the ground and that's a very conscious design decision. But they're not doing these consultations with the community. They're not seeing what the community actually needs. If they're actually serving the community desires, um, they're serving the needs of the business model and the need to quickly roll out to grab market share to try to take over like Uber did before it. They're not concerned about what the community actually wants or needs. One of the kind of benefits now as these companies are you know, being shown to be not profitable, not workable, not actually delivering community benefits. There have been studies that show that their climate contribution is actually much higher than if people had taken another way to get around because the vehicles themselves are so disposable, the scooters in particular. Um is that it does offer us the opportunity to go back to doing these consultations, to having the city have a much bigger role and say over what these services look like and how they're rolled out so that they can ensure that the community benefits are there and that what actually gets rolled out is a benefit to the community and not actually kind of hindering people's rights and people's means to get around. Because I think what we've, seen in the past few years, particularly during the pandemic, when we look at cities like France or Montreal, where there have been big increases in bicycle use during that period, is that it's not just throwing a bunch of these scooters and whatnot on the sidewalk, and that is what changes things. It's actually you know, ensuring that the infrastructure is there in terms of bike lanes, in terms of parking, in things like that um, that people can actually use and depend on. And that is what encourages people to change the way that they get around, not just, you know, throwing these disposable vehicles, um, all over the place.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it, that case really, uh, underlines that, uh, cliche you keep coming back to about the mantra of move fast and break stuff. Um, sure. If that's breaking, you know, the taxi industry, whatever, but when you're breaking public space when you're breaking, uh, the, the, the ability of my mother-in-law to walk down the, uh, the sidewalk with a disability. I mean, it, <laughs> no, don't, don't break that. Um, Exactly. You know, but, yep. but, but on the other hand, I mean, like I've. There have been times when I've I've used those e-bikes and found them really valuable because, like I work in Sacramento, I'm not going to take a nicer bike into downtown Sacramento because there's nowhere that I can lock it up that I can't be assured that I won't get my, my components stolen at the very least, let alone the whole bicycle. Same here in Santa Cruz where bike theft is just absolutely rampant. Um, and there, there were earlier models, like you mentioned, of of using that, using the, uh, the bikes, but with consultation and, and also providing proper infrastructure for the private bike owner. So, um, I, I I could talk to you for another couple hours, but we we do need to wrap up at some point. Um, so you've been telling us everything that's, that's wrong, (laughs) everything that's, that's been disastrous. Could you give us a, a few key, um, suggestions, uh, some, some marching orders. What I mean, what would you like to see? What I mean, what, what could help us build a better future?
1: Yeah. You know, if we're thinking about transportation, right. And what it actually means to get around and to solve these problems that, you know, a system that is dominated by the automobile, where many people are dependent on the automobile and have very few other choices to get around. Um, You know, if we're going to actually take that on, we need to look at the automobile, the consequences of it, and look at real solutions. And part of that is really ensuring that people have proper alternatives, right? That you can actually get around without needing to own an automobile, and that- The infrastructure and the services are in place to ensure that you can do that. So that means like much more investment in public transportation as an alternative to the automobile. So it's more reliable. It reaches more people. It's more frequent so that you can actually depend on it in a way that in many places you can't right now. But also ensuring that there's investments in cycling infrastructure, as we've been talking about whether that's, you know, dedicated lanes on the streets, places where you can park it and be sure that it's not going to get stolen. That's really important to enabling people to, you know, drop their cars, at least for some trips and use these other means of getting around. On top of that, you know, you actually need to be able to get between cities in ways that are not dependent on a car or a plane increasingly. Um, and so that means real investment in the train network um, to ensure that there are better better trains, faster trains, more reliable trains, um, you know, after decades of underinvestment in Amtrak and the rail network. I think that's really important. The final piece of this that I would mention and you know, we were talking before how automobility was not just about creating automobiles, but also creating communities around automobiles, right? The build out of the suburbs was intimately linked with building the infrastructure for the automobile because you needed to spread people out more. And so if we're thinking about investing in cycling infrastructure in transit to enable people to You know, get around in these different ways, that's also going to have impacts on the way that we build communities. One of the problems that we see right now in places like Los Angeles is that when um, transit infrastructure is improved or when bicycle lanes are added, that can increase property values. And then so the people who would most benefit from it then get priced out of those neighborhoods and pushed away so they don't get those benefits, right? And that is part of where some of the opposition to these things comes from. It's not just all, you know, white homeowners in their single family homes who don't want any development near them. You know, there's a range of um, approaches to this there's a range of reasons to be opposed to some things and in some cases that's minority communities that's low-income communities who feel that if these improvements are made they won't be able to live in their neighborhoods any longer because they won't be able to afford them and that's a real problem and that's something that we need to deal with and so then it's not just investments in these transportation alternatives in transit in cycling but also investing in communities in public housing to ensure that you know People can actually afford to live in these improved communities where they can access these forms of transportation that aren't a car, where, you know, they can get to the grocery store or the doctor or whatnot without having to drive, all these sorts of things. And so, you know, it just requires to think about transportation, but also to think beyond that to the other systems that interact with that um and that we might need to address in order to build better communities and a better society.
0: Great, great. So um Again, you've been super generous with your time, and I appreciate it, but um, two questions before I let you go. Um, first, can you recommend two books for the listeners?
1: Absolutely. I was thinking about this like before we started talking, and I wasn't sure if they should be like specifically transportation-oriented, um, but I, I picked on some that I think have like a historical component that'll be interesting to people. And the first is Space Forces, A Critical History of Life in Outer Space by Fred Sharman that came out last year. Um, And, you know, especially in this moment where we have people like Elon Musk pushing visions for colonizing Mars and whatnot. um, Fred really kind of brings us back through the history of these ideas about outer space from science fiction, from NASA, from all these different um, places, and, and how they inform how we think about space today. And so I found that one to be a really interesting read. And then the second is one I read just recently called the Empire, of, the Empire of Effects, Industrial Light and Magic and the Rendering of Realism. So I think that we're in this moment, you know, if people are interested in it, where um, you know, we're having this discussion around film and television and what the future of that looks like, the impact that Disney has had on it, um, the way that they're using visual effects in in a potential way to replace other workers on the set with ununionized visual effects workers. And we're having more visual effects workers speak out about the impacts of that. So there's a really interesting book that looks at the history of visual effects, and especially the role that Industrial Light of Magic, which is Lucasfilm's visual effects arm has has played in that. And, and in particular, the narrative that it's built around itself that is not entirely accurate at all times but also how Disney's acquisition of that company and how it's build out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is really changing the visual effects industry and so I found it really fascinating.
0: Well as, as a proud uh, union member I'm always happy to uh... On your podcast and in in your your writing, when you you give these solid shout outs for uh, for organized labor. Um, and finally, um, what are you working on now? And um, where can also where can listeners find your work?
1: Absolutely. You know, they can find me on Twitter, of course, uh, at Paris Marks over there. That's where I'm a bit too active, I think. Um, <laughs> you can also find Tech Won't Save Us on all the different platforms. Um, and certainly the book is available from, you know, any major bookseller. Um, I believe Verso Books has it on for 20% off right now if people, you know, want to want to grab a copy there. I, I don't that's, know how long the sale is going to move. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the, puns, um, the puns are coming fast and furious. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, th- those are some options. I would say what I'm working on right now, you know, it's not anything really specific, you know, I'm still just working on the podcast, writing away, trying to figure out what what does come next and what I do want to work on next. I think one topic um is and one of the reasons why I read that book, um The Empire of Effects recently is that I do think I want to look a bit more into, you know, the film and television industry and what is going on with visual effects and and, you know, how things are changing on that front. Um, And so that's probably something I'll be digging into a bit more in the future.
0: Well, fantastic. Fantastic. And um, uh, Paris Marks, thank you so much for chatting with me today.
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on the show and for your great questions and interest in the book and my work.
0: Great. So this has been a conversation with Paris Marks about Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation, published by Verso in 2022. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.